But as we begin here this morning, we want to look to 1 Corinthians once again, and we're coming to the closing chapters of this book. We're working our way through chapter 14, as you know, and uh, this is the 73rd message in this book, and I thank you for your patience. I don't know if it's just my uh, inability to understand. I kind of go slow through Bible books of the Bible and uh, need to repeat a lot, and some of you have told me that, but... Um, I feel if I need to repeat it to myself, maybe others need to hear it as well. <laughs> so I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what I like to believe. But we're speaking of the gift of tongues. And um, this is a very controversial section of Scripture. And I know some of you have shared your uh, feelings of controversy with me. And uh, that's good. That's what we're all about here. We never want you to just believe whatever somebody says from a pulpit whoever it is. Always check it out with the Word of God, and they should be able to back up what they teach with verses of Scripture, because we believe this book to be the inerrant Word of God. Amen? And so let's turn to 1 Corinthians, and we're going to read verses 26 through 33. So I'd ask you to stand in honor of God's Word this morning as we read this text of Scripture. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14, Beginning in verse 26, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation? Let all things be done for building up. If anyone speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at the most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. Verse 28, But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. And he switches to prophecy in verse 29, and he says, Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one. So that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of grace. Father, we ask you to bless this word to our heart, this text. Help us to understand it and apply it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now, we've talked about 1 Corinthians 14. Now, this is the sixth lesson that we've been here on this subject. And I just want to remind you that the whole, the whole topic of conversation throughout chapter 14 has been edification. It has been the idea that when the church gathers together corporately, you don't come here for your own purpose. You come here to edify another believer, another brother or sister in Christ. And that's why it's so important that you gather together as the body of Christ. You know, we've experienced what it's like not to gather, right, for a month or so when the whole COVID thing was going on. And finally, we decided as elders, we're going to start meeting. It doesn't matter what Governor Newsom or anybody else says, we believe the church should be the church. It's called out. That's what the word ecclesia means, called out ones. And the Bible very clearly says that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And it's for that reason that we don't want to forsake the assembling, because if we don't gather together as the body of Christ, you're not going to be built up in your Christian faith. And so he talks about that throughout the chapter. In verse 3, he mentions edification, building up. In verse 4, he talks about edifying the church. In verse 5 of chapter 14, he says, so that the church may be built up. In verse 12, he says, strive to excel in building up the church. I mean, you get in the flavor of what Paul wants us to understand. In verse 19, he says, in order to instruct or build up others, That's why we do what we do. And it all comes to fruition down in verse 26 when he says there, let all things be done for what? For building up or for the edification of all. And so the thought here is when the church comes together, and that's what he's been talking about all the way from chapter 11 through chapter 14. 
He's talking about not individuals meeting. He's not talking about you at home in your prayer closet. That's not his topic of conversation here. He's talking about as the church gathers publicly together. He's referring to the assembly of the church when it comes together for corporate worship. And so he's saying when the church does that, the primary purpose is edification. A lot of churches don't understand that today. Good meaning churches don't understand that. They think the purpose of the church when the church gathers together on a Sunday is what? They want to believe it's evangelism. That's not the purpose of the church for a Sunday morning gathering. Now, we pray that evangelism takes place. (laughs) We pray that the gospel is distributed, that maybe someone here this morning who doesn't know Christ will hear the gospel and their heart will be enlightened and their eyes will be opened and they'll turn from their sin and turn to Christ and Christ alone and be saved. We pray that that always happens. But that's not our primary purpose here this morning. The primary purpose is to build up the saints of God, to build up the church of Christ. And if you get that backwards, that's what happens with, quote, what do they call them? User-friendly churches, right? Everything's dumbed down because they've exchanged the glory of Christ on a Sunday morning and the glory of the church and the edification of the church. They've sacrificed that on the altar of evangelism. Now, they're well-meaning, I'm not saying they're doing it with ill motive. They think this is a a good thing to do. But whenever you do that, whenever you compromise what God's word says, especially when it comes to the church of Christ, you're doing just that. You're compromising God's word. And so we don't want to play into that. And so it's, it's very, very clear here, this word edification, just a couple words. We're not even in the outline yet, so these are all side notes. But the Greek word here, oikodomio, is the, the Greek word. It's made up of two words. Oiko, which means house. Oikos is a house. And, and, and demo means to build up. So it's talking about someone who actually builds houses. That's what the word edification means. And that's the term that's used here. And it's used throughout the New Testament for that purpose. Matter of fact, it's even used in the verse that says the stone which the stone which the builders rejected, speaking of Christ, that same has become the head of the corner, the chief cornerstone. That's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice it says the stone which the builders reject. That word builders is this word. It's talking about somebody who builds a house, builds a building. It always means to edify. And it, here it's speaking of it in a spiritual sense. It means to be built up um, like a person who would start a house with a foundation. You know, you drive around Rebel City and you see people building houses all over the place, don't you? Some of you have new construction going on in your backyard and you look out your window and the walls aren't up yet. All you see is maybe just a ditch where the foundation is going to go. <laughs> maybe the foundation is not even there yet. But you have to lay that foundation first. And so the church has a very intentional and design built into it, intentionality, that the building up of the saints through edification to full full completeness, that's what we want to do as a church. And that means we have to promote your spiritual growth. We're not here to entertain you. We're not here to do a light and smoke show, you know, on Sunday morning and make you feel all warm and fuzzy on the inside. That's not our purpose. We, we expect you to come rested from the night before, your mind ready to go, so that when someone stands behind the pulpit and opens up God's word, you're not falling half asleep, you're not daydreaming about something else, you're engaged with the very word of God. That's the major thrust of the church, the major purpose of the church. We're called together to be edified, to be built up. Edification is the issue. And you know what? It's the responsibility not just of the pastor or the elders or the deacons to edify the congregation. It's the responsibility of each one of you to edify one another. And if you're not here, guess what? You're not going to be edifying anybody. That's why it's 
it's very important that you understand that coming together as the body of Christ is something that is instructed, it's commanded, it's not an option. Now, in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Paul says that in so many words. He says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. That's, those are instructions to the church. So it's the task of the people to edify. It's not just the preacher or the leader or whoever else runs the church, whatever. It's not just there. They should be doing it as well because in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, Paul says that's why he gave them to the church. He says he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. Why? To entertain you? No, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. See, and this is where a lot of pastors get themselves in trouble. They think that, well, they're the only one called to ministry, so therefore they're the only one that can do anything. And that's, that's ridiculous. The primary role of a pastor is not to do everything. The primary role of a pastor is to equip those saints that he's called to shepherd for the work of the ministry. That's what we're called to do. The building up of the body of Christ. That's our calling. That's our God-given responsibility. It's a divine mandate. There's no way you can get around it. That's what we're called to do. Even Romans 15.2 says, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. We don't come just because, oh, they're going to play my favorite song or my favorite pastor's preaching or, boy, I hope he speaks on a subject I like. If you're coming to church for that reason... You're coming for the wrong reason. And we've discussed this as we've dealt with spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts were given not for our own entertainment, not for our own building up, not for our own edification, but for what? For the edification of one another. And that's what is so unique about the church. He calls all these people from different backgrounds, pagan, Jew, Gentile, whatever, all together in the body of Christ. And he says, you know what? I've saved each one of you. I've given each one of you at least one spiritual gift. Now I want you to use that spiritual gift for the building up of your brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's exactly not what the church of Corinth was doing. They were doing the complete opposite. Matter of fact, in 14.2, it points out that rather than emphasizing that truth, it says, what Paul basically says, what you're doing is you're, you're not speaking onto men. In other words, you shouldn't be coming together and just standing up and jibber-jabbishing about something that nobody even understands. That doesn't build up anybody. Verse 4, he says, are you edifying yourself? If you are, that's wrong. Now, that's the wrong kind of... I would say self-edification. And I made this statement, and I stand by it. The Bible never calls us to edify ourselves, ever, in relationship to spiritual gifts. Why do I qualify it that way? Because in Jude chapter 20, as someone rightly pointed out to me, it says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And so those in the charismatic movement will look at that and say, well, when he says no one should be building themselves up, that's a violation of Jude chapter 20, or verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up. Notice it says nothing about the use of spiritual gifts here. Jude is not saying, oh, use your spiritual gift to build yourself up, which is exactly what the charismatic movement says to do with the gift of tongues. So for those of us who are Christians to exercise discernment and protect ourselves from being led astray, God really, in those two verses there, Jude 20 and 21, provides a a way of sanctification. And the first first step in doing that involves building ourselves up, but it tells us how. Does it say build yourself up by speaking in tongues? It doesn't say that at all. It doesn't mention any spiritual gifts. It says build yourselves up what? In your most holy faith. So how do you do that? You have to be doctrinally strong. You have to understand what the most holy faith is. It's the objective body of biblical truth. 
That's why when we gather together as the body of Christ, we study the word of God. And by the way, this isn't something that's optional. This is an imperative. This tells you that, you know what, you need to be building yourself up with the word of God, with instruction in the word of God, your most holy faith. Matter of fact, the Bible never removes edification from the word of God. That's the only way we can really be built up is through the word of God. That's why Paul in chapter 14 talks about prophecy as being more important, more necessary than even the true gift of languages. Because he says, even if you exercise the true gift of languages in a mixed setting, if someone here stands and uses the true gift of tongues, they speak in a language, half of us, probably three-quarters of us, aren't going to understand that language. Maybe a couple people will. And Paul says, you know what? Even the true gift, if it's used correctly doesn't edify everybody. That's why you have to have what? An interpreter. That's why you have to have someone to be able to interpret what is being said when they use the true gift. What was happening in the Corinthian church, unfortunately, was they took the true gift and they were using it in ways that God did not prescribe. They were using it because maybe God gave them a true gift and they just wanted to be heard. Have you ever had someone with a spiritual gift and all they want to do is show you how important their spiritual gift is. <laughs> they're, not, they're not fun to be around. It's like a, a pastor who thinks he's the only one that can teach. That would be wrong. God has gifted many men in our, our church who are gifted to teach. And by the way, some women in our church who are gifted to teach. And we're going to talk about the role of women in our church as we get into that next week. We don't believe it's to be behind a pulpit. That's restricted for elders who are men. That's what the Bible says. But don't think for a moment that God says, oh, there's no place for women in the church. If there was no place for women in the church, I don't think the church would have a prayer. (laughs) You know, women are the backbone of the church. The women are the ones that do most of the work in the church, it seems. So he says, be built up in your most holy faith in Jude. That's an aspect of edification. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 32, he's telling the Ephesian elders this. He says this, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able, what is able? The word of his grace, to build you up. And to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. See, it's, it's very important to understand that God's word always says that we're built up through his word. That's the point. And then in Jude 21, he talks about praying in the Holy Spirit. This has nothing to do with speaking in tongues. has absolutely nothing to do with speaking in tongues. It's basically talking, praying inconsistent with the Spirit's will, his desires his directives, his decrees, just like we want to do that with Christ's will and the Father's will. And so unfortunately, the charismatic movement pulls that one verse, those two verses out of context, and they make it mean something that it doesn't mean. So edification basically is the goal of what we want to accomplish as we gather together as the church. It involves a right attitude, you come through those doors on a Sunday morning with a right attitude and you, you understand that uh, you, know, you, you want to grow in your faith. And the only way you can do that is by coming under the teaching and by using your gifts with, with each other and edifying one another. Then you will grow as a believer. And you say, well, what, what about evangelism? Where does evangelism fit into the church then? If it doesn't happen on a Sunday morning, Acts chapter 9, verse 31 kind of spells it out. It says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up or being edified. So the churches were doing what they should have been doing. They were teaching the word. The saints were growing. They were growing in their faith. They were being built up. And then it says this, and walking in the fear of the Lord... And in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, what happens? They multiplied. (laughs) The church multiplied. 
Why? See, growth is the result of edification. Growth is not the result of evangelism. That's the misnomer. As the church is built up, it will reach out because you'll understand your full purpose in Christ. And evangelism will be the product, the byproduct of that. So we're to be edified as the body of Christ. And he points that out very, very clearly. And so what he's doing here, back to 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is trying to halt all this wrongdoing in the Corinthian church. He's telling them over and over again, you need to stop this perverted use of the gift of tongues. You've got to stop bringing in this pagan ecstasy stuff that's going on. People just talking in gibberish, that's not going to help anyone. And you need to stop you know, uh, trying to just pine after those certain gifts that put you in front of people because you just want to be seen by people. That's what was happening. They were all about themselves. They were looking at themselves. Their egos were involved. And so he kind of draws it down to tongues and prophecy, and he says, by the way, prophecy is far more important than tongues because prophecy always edifies because you're speaking the language everyone understands. And so he's laid out some principles here, how they should function. Now, in the beginning of verse 26, he says, What then, brothers? This is classic Paul. What's he saying? What's he mean, what then? He's basically just given us, all the way up to verse 25, all this theology about spiritual gifts. That's what he's done. He's given us a bunch of teaching, a bunch of theology, a bunch of biblical principles. And then he says, basically, because of what I've just shared with you in the first 14 chapters of this book, big deal. How does this apply to you? That's how Paul does it a lot. In Romans, the book of Romans, remember when we went through the book of Romans? What were the first 11 chapters? Paratheology. Just theology after theology after theology, more theology. And it wasn't until chapter 12, in verse 1, that Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. What's he saying? Based on what I just taught you in verses 1, or chapters 1 through 11, therefore, here's how you apply it. He does the same thing in the book of Ephesians. A lot of Christians struggle with their identity in Christ. Well, I don't feel like a Christian. I don't know who I am. Read the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. It will tell you who you are in Christ. That you were chosen before the foundation of the world. That you were held by, the, by God's power for all eternity. That you are a son of the most high God. All that information in the first three chapters of Ephesians. And then Paul comes to chapter 4 and he says, Because I taught you all this, now here's how it affects your families and your children and your churches and your pastors. And he lays it all out. See, if you never follow that pattern, and it's a biblical pattern, God never tells us to do something without some form of theology attached to it, without some form of biblical principle attached to it. He's laid out all these principles relative to how things should function within the church in relationship to gifts. What should be their purpose? What should be their position? We talked about that in the first last couple of weeks. He's given us clearly theological definitions. And now, beginning in verse 26, he says, Since this is true of these gifts, everything I've taught you is true, this is the way you should apply it. This is the way it should affect the way you meet as a church. The Bible, particularly in the New Testament, Never ask for behavior without first giving us a reason. God never says, I want you to do this, but there's no reason for it. There's always a reason. There's always a theological truth behind God's commands to us. Now, granted, we may not understand it at the time, right? But there is always a reason And as a matter of fact, I'd go as far as to say when you demand behavior without any theological or biblical principle or reason involved, what do you end up with? You end up with pure legalism. 
That's what legalists do. They go around telling everybody else how they should live their lives. Not based on any scripture, just because it's their preference. So it's, it's very important. There's nothing required of you. There's nothing asked of you. There's nothing exhorted of you. In the first 11 chapters of Romans, it's only after that when he says, because of all I've taught you, do this. So we come to this. We've been through the position of the gift of tongues. It's secondary. We've talked about the purpose of the gift of tongues. It's a sign. Who's it assigned to? Non-believers. The gift of tongues is a sign. The true gift of tongues was assigned to non-believers. It says that in verse 14. Or in verse, uh, not in verse 14, 1 Corinthians. It's a sign to uh, verse 22. The songs are, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers in verse 22. And so now we come to the procedure. Well, how does this affect how we meet as a church? And he lays out a very systematic way. And this kind of goes quick. We're not going to get through all the outline today, but we'll get through some of it. You have to understand, you know, what then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for the building up. And Paul is basically saying, when you have all this confusion going on that was going on in the Corinthian church, at the same time, in the same place, everybody's doing everything. So an unbeliever comes in, and what does Paul say? He says, they're going to think you're nuts. They're going to think you are mad. And so Paul begins to list some principles for us here to understand. And so they were using the true gifts in an unbiblical way. They were using this counterfeit gift that they kind of stole from their pagan religions. They brought that in there. There was alcohol. There was sexual behavior. It was untoward involved, all this stuff. And then you had everybody just kind of popping off at the same time. It's like a session of the British Parliament. You ever watch those guys on TV? They're all yelling at each other. You can't even understand them. It's really weird. I mean, it was even worse in the Corinthian church. I mean, at least they spoke the same language. In the Corinthian church, you had people speaking this ecstatic language that they couldn't understand, nobody else could understand. Then you had people using the true gift of languages where they were actually speaking a language, but some of the people couldn't understand that. Then you had other people. It says when they came together, each one has a hymn. It means a song. So, you know, I've been involved with music in churches for many years, and I, I can recall some churches where we had some people that, boy, all they wanted to do was sing the solo. That's all they wanted to do. Well, when can I sing my solo? You know, and you let them sing a solo. Well, I might sing it next week. That's all they're focused on. And eventually, you've got to say, you know what? Yeah, you can sing solo. Nobody can hear you. Get, get out of here. You know, because that's all they're interested in. They're just interested in hearing themselves sing. That's what was happening here. If we all came in here and we said, I have a favorite song. I have a favorite song. And since you're not singing it, I'm going to sing it. And while we were singing something, you were singing something else and somebody else. Can you imagine the chaos? Well, then, in these charismatic churches, what they do is they, they say, well, we're going to sing in tongues. Let's all sing in tongues. So they all start just going off in tongues. And you can see where someone would be kind of unnerved by that behavior. Because nobody understands what's going on. It's chaos. And that word hymn or song means even with an accompanying instrument. So you not only had their voices, you had the instruments. Everybody's playing their own little tune, playing their own little solo. Not good. Each one has a hymn. And then he says, each one has a lesson, which simply means a teaching. So that would be like if, if I'm up here teaching and somebody else stands up and says, hey, you know what, I, I got something I want to say. There are churches that do that, by the way. They don't believe in a pastor actually standing up and preaching from the Bible. Now it's more a dialogue. It's a conversation with the congregation. And the congregation has all these little electronic devices. And so the pastor can see, oh, you know what? They're, they're giving me negative signs. I better turn this message around. This actually happens in some of these churches. They all get their little device when they walk through and they sit there and, okay. It's crazy. Everybody who wanted to exercise the gift of teaching or everybody who thought 
that he was gifted in this area, just stood up in his corner and started teaching. And that was over the noise of everybody standing up and singing their own songs and playing their own instruments. And then it says, and someone has a revelation. So there were apparently people standing up in the congregation saying, hey, wait a minute, thus saith the Lord, I got a word. That goes on in charismatic churches all the time. I watch one program on TV because I like the music, and once in a while during their service, and because they're on TV, you know, there's a, usually a big clock in the back, and it's clicking away because they got, they got time restraints, right? And inevitably, you know, the guy get to the end of his message, and all of a sudden somebody stands up in the congregation and starts going off. And you can see the poor pastor, he's looking at the clock, and he's like, okay, I know we believe in this. This is the word of the Lord, but uh, we're getting down to the time cruncher. And he's, you can tell he's trying to wait for that moment when he can just cut this guy off. Everybody has a revelation. And then he says, everybody has a tongue. Now, we said in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, you can tell when he's referring to the true gift of tongues or languages because it's plural. Remember that? And if you look at where it's singular, he's usually referring to the counterfeit gift. Because if you're speaking in different languages, if you're speaking in German and French and whatever, Spanish, then those are actual languages. But if you're just standing up and going, blah, 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 speaking in gibberish, there's only one dialect of that. It's singular. But here is the exception. Because here he's grouping together He says, if someone has a tongue, he's saying, it doesn't matter whether it's the counterfeit version or the real gift. It doesn't matter. He says, if they're just standing up and it's all out of order and it's in the wrong place, then you got a problem. It was the true gift in the wrong expression, or it could have been the counterfeit gift. And it's based upon the the Greek construction of the language here, I'm not going to go into all the details, but the use of the singular word tongue is demanded because the object is singular. He says, if one has a tongue or brings a tongue. So it doesn't violate the principle that when he's using plural, it can be the real gift, the true gift of languages, or when it's singular, that it's referring to the false gift. Uh, you can still... Hold that up in the text. So you had all this singing, this teaching, these revelations, these tongues going off. And then you had some people who were giving interpretations of tongues. <laughs> and uh, they were trying to interpret whatever was, else was going on, maybe in a good way. Maybe they thought, well, this is my gift. I don't know. But um, it basically just turned into a big fight. You know, if... if we all started sharing our testimony at the same time here. Some of you have the personality that would probably just be quiet and, and you would just stop talking if someone else talked. Other people have a different kind of personality. What do they do? They raise their voice louder. I'm going to talk louder than you. I'm going to talk over you. You're not going to talk over me, right? That, that's what happens. And that's what was happening in the church here. So it was pure chaos. And so he wants them to see here this structure for edification. And so he says this... It shouldn't be this way, but it is. When you come together, each one is a ham, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Look at what he says at the end. Let all things be done for building up. That's not building up. If you have a disorderly worship service, that doesn't help anybody. So he's saying, look at the way, look for a way to resolve all this confusion. And the way to resolve it is by focusing on edification to build one another up. Now look at the structure in verses 27 to 35. He gives a procedure here for tongues in verse 27, and this is violated, by the way, all the time in the charismatic movement in their churches. In verse 27, he says, If anyone speak in a tongue, once again, it could be the true gift of languages, or it could be the forfeit, the the counterfeit one, I mean, uh, uh, the counterfeit gift. So he says, if, if someone speaks in a tongue, let there be only two, or what? Three at the most. So he limits the use even of the true gift in a worship service. Why would he do that? Because remember, even the true gift of languages cannot edify everybody. And what's the purpose of the church gathering together? 
mutual edification. So if someone stands up because maybe someone's here from Germany and no, you know, they don't speak any English and God wanted them in the Corinthian church to hear a message in German, someone would stand up with the gift of true languages, be able to speak German without ever even having learned it, and that person would understand. But then when that happened, someone else in the congregation who had the gift of interpretation would stand up and interpret what was said so everybody else could be edified. So it's, it's very clear here that he says if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should, the first principle is let there be only two or three at the most. The Holy Spirit never works in a way that seems out of control. You see this all the time with people who are in this word of faith movement. I just can't help myself. And they just start going off in their thing and they're flopping on the floor and they're doing all this stuff. They're out of control. That is not the Holy Spirit. That is not the Holy Spirit. It's probably a spirit, but it's not the Holy Spirit. And so we have to be careful. Spiritual gifts were not like these pagan ecstasies that were totally took control of the individual and just had them passing out on the floor. That's not what happened. The gifts of the Spirit were ministered when people were in control. You know, it's very important to understand that. It's like when you talk to someone with the gift of exhortation. Some people with the gift of exhortation, they're just very rude people. And they think because they have the gift of exhortation, they can go around and tell everybody else what to do. Hey, if their feelings get hurt, who cares? I have the gift of exhortation. I don't have the gift of mercy. Well, that's the wrong use of a true gift. You have to be careful with that. So it's, it's very important that he wanted to limit it to two or three at the most. And then notice in verse 27, principle number two is that it says, and each in turn. In other words, there's a sequence to it. You're not all doing it at the same time. That wouldn't make any sense. That wouldn't be orderly. They were all using their gifts at the same time, trying to outdo one another. And that is forbidden. And that's, this is common behavior in a charismatic church if you've ever been to one. They have a section of the service where everybody starts speaking in tongues, and, and depending on how Pentecostal they are, they can really get crazy in their services. And it's very uncomfortable because it's not something that's from the Lord. Principle number three in verse 27, it says, and let someone interpret. Now, this is something that a lot of people miss here. The, the Greek emphasizes the word one, let someone um, let one interpret is the idea. So you didn't have 50 people in your church that were standing up giving interpretations. And this is something that's homiletical, right, in our understanding of Scripture. There's only one true interpretation of any Scripture. Have you ever shared the word with somebody and they say, well, that's not my interpretation? What do you say to that? I say, I don't care. Who cares what your interpretation is? Who cares what my interpretation is? What is Paul speaking here in this text to these people in Corinth? See, once we understand that, then we can make an application. There are many applications of Scripture, but there's only one true interpretation of any Scripture. So he says, let one interpret, not two, five, fourteen, whatever. He says, let one. So apparently he gives the idea that they knew who was the interpreter in their churches. Maybe a bigger church, they had a couple people, but they knew if they were there. Because if you go on to principle number four here, in verse 28, he says, if there is no one to interpret, well, how would they know? You know, if, if you have the gift of languages and you were going to stand up and, and use that true gift in a, in a sanctuary with a, with a group of people gathered as the church, you better look around and see if there's an interpreter there. You know, this isn't off the cuff. They would look around and say, oh, Charlie, the interpreter isn't here. What do I do now? I have this true gift. I feel like the Lord wants me to use it. What does it say in verse 28? If there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church. In other words, just sit there and shut up. Because it's not something that's controlling you. You control your giftedness. And that's the misnomer that they teach. It's like, well, you just kind of get out of control. He says, no, just keep silent and speak to yourself, meditate, 
and talk to God about it. Because obviously, if there's no interpreter here, God doesn't want you to use even the true gift of languages in any congregation. If you had the true gift of tongues and an unbelieving Jew came in the assembly and you, there wasn't anybody around to, to give the, the gift of interpretation, then what are you supposed to do? You just sit there and shut up. And you talk to God and you meditate. And you can say, well, that would be a great, what if that person needs to hear the Lord? And what, what are we focused on? We're focused on evangelism again. That's not the purpose of the church. The church service is for what? It is for edification. And that's why I said it. it's very touchy. If you get those things mixed up, you're going to end up on the wrong side of the truth. So he gives here this, this procedure for prophesying. So he covers tongues and he says, you know what? It shouldn't be any more than, than one, two, three. Um, they do it in order. They only do it if there's an interpreter there. If there's no interpreter, then just sit there and be quiet. But then he also covers the gift of, of prophecy, which indicates that even in the area of prophecy, the Corinthians were using it wrong. They were trying to stand up and, and, and be seen by everybody. They were exalting themselves. They were abusing even the true gift. And so what are the principles here? And these go quickly. Verse 29, he says, you know what? It still applies. I'll say the same thing about prophecy I said about tongues. Two, three prophets. In other words, if you have a church service and everybody wants to be a prophet and everybody wants to stand up and teach, it's not going to be very orderly. There were never to be more than three prophets speaking. Gives that indication there. One is great, two are okay, maybe three at the max. Well, what were these prophets? Are these Old Testament prophets? No, they're New Testament prophets. The word prophet, we we went over this before, means to speak before someone. To speak the word of God before someone. And they were those who stood up to declare God's message. Now, back in the early church, before the word of God was completed, some of them had a revelatory sense to it. In other words, they may have something that God wants to say fresh. In other words, they were literally speaking the word of God that wasn't even written yet. And so he gives this declaration of the prophets that they spoke direct revelation from God, but they also repeated the revelation from God. Like, when I teach on a Sunday morning, I'm not giving direct revelation from God. I'm not up here saying, thus says the Lord. This morning when I was shaving, this is what God told me. And you're not going to find it in your Bible, but it's okay because God gave it to me. See, that would, that would be divine revelation. We don't believe that happens anymore. Why? Because the canon of Scripture is closed. It's complete. We don't need that. As a matter of fact, John gives a very severe warning. You don't add, you don't take away from the words of this book. So the prophets were foundational to the church. If you look throughout Scripture, they're not mentioned later on in the church. There's no mention. After the church is established, there's no mention of New Testament prophets. Now, there's still the gift of prophecy, somebody who stands up and and puts forth the word of God. But what does the church talk about in Timothy and Titus and and, and the, uh, the epistles that deal with the church? He talks about elders and presbyter and bishops and deacons and deaconesses. He doesn't talk about prophets anymore. Why? Because the office of prophet, the office of apostle has passed away. It was part of the apostolic age and it, they were a unique group and they're done. Ephesians 2.20 says that they're the foundation of the church. Once you build the foundation, you don't keep building the foundation on top of the foundation. That wouldn't make any sense. So he says, basically, first of all, two, three, same thing. Principle two, let others weigh in what is said. The others, who are they? They refer to the other prophets. That's why he says the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. You know, if, if, if I stand up and teach something that's not in accord with the word of God, I pray that Ken or someone else in the body would say, hey, wait a minute. 
you know, you're saying Jesus isn't God. Where do you get that? That's not true. You know, um, and a hook would come out and yank me off the, out of the platform probably. I don't know. Maybe Ken's built a trap door here that I don't know about. I don't know. But it, it's, it's important that we weigh what is being taught. We don't just sit here like a bunch of just empty minds. Yes. Well, he's behind a pulpit and he's holding a Bible. He must be teaching the right thing. No. In the third principle, verse 30, he says, If a revelation is made, this is kind of interesting, to another sitting here, let the first be silent. So here's the picture. There's a prophet standing up in front of the church. He's giving a message of the revealed text of Scripture or whatever. He's telling forth the Word of God. And somebody comes up and kind of tugs on his tunic and says, Hey, I got a fresh word from the Lord. I have a revelation. God just gave me something fresh. Well, back then, that would happen because the canon wasn't complete. God was continuing to give revelation. And so what would you do in that case? Would that prophet just say, oh, sit down, I'm not done? No, you would say, oh, by all means, go right ahead if this is, if this is a fresh revelation from God. And so that's why he says, if a revelation is made, well, then to another sitting there, let the first be silent. You just have to sit down and let the guy give the fresh revelation. And then in verses 31 and 32, he gives the, the fourth principle, basically, when it deals with prophecy. He says, for you can all prophesy one by one. In other words, there's got to be some order to it, out of the two, three, whatever, so that all may, what, learn and be encouraged. This is the goal. And then he says, the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, if you're a true prophet, if you really have the gift here of being a prophet, you will be able to control that gift. A true gift never functions in some kind of out-of-control nature. True gifts are always, true spiritual gifts are always under the control of the individual. And so he gave us some principles here to follow. Why? Because he wants us all to learn. He wants us all to grow. He wants us all to be encouraged. Why? Because the edification of the church is the issue. You know, Paul's telling the Corinthians, hey, don't give me that excuse you're out of control. You're just feeling the spirit. You're just in the mood, whatever. Don't give me that. There's order here. We have to maintain order. That's why he says, for God is not a God of confusion, but of what? Of peace. Now, that doesn't mean you have to just sit here and be stone cold throughout the entire service. You know, I mean, it's, it's healthy to hear an amen once in a while so that I know you're not sleeping on me. But I'm, at the same time, you know, at the same time, it's important that we have order. You know, we're not the frozen chosen. Okay, we're just, we're all going to sit here and be right. No. You know, we, you should be engaged with your mind. You should be, okay, what is he teaching? What is, is this true? Is this not? How's he supporting this in Scripture? You know, this is the key of edification. When you come together, all that is part of your service should be manifesting the God whom we serve. A God of order, a God of dignity, a God of peace. And if it's not that, if it's just a mass of chaos and confusion where everybody's trying to outdo each other and an unbeliever comes in, he's going to say, what kind of God do these people serve? I don't want to be part of that. They're a bunch of nuts. So God is one who functions systematically for results, not chaotically for feelings. And next week we'll look at what Paul says about women in the church. Where is their place? What, what are they called to do? But let's close in a word of prayer. We'll sing one last song and then we'll have our time of fellowship across the way. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you, Lord, that Paul laid this out very clear for us. This isn't rocket science. This isn't something that we have to go over and over and over. But at the same time, it's important because Paul went over and over it. And he, it was obviously an issue in the church of Corinth. And we know that it's an issue in a lot of charismatic churches today. And once again, we're not here to cast judgment or anything else on the charismatic brothers and sisters who are truly believers even though they're ill-taught, we, we pray that you would be gracious to them and give them a proper understanding of the use of their gifts. 
And Lord, we do embrace them as the body of Christ. We, we don't feel it necessary to um, condemn them because they may be believing something different. But at the same time, we want to be accurate in what Paul was teaching and accurate in our understanding and learning of Scripture. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us continued wisdom as we continue through the book of Corinthians. We pray for our fellowship time across the way as well, that you would bless the food and bless the fellowship. Lord, we pray if there's anyone here today who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, Lord, it's never too late. I think of the thief on the cross. It's never too late for you to step into someone's life and transform them, to open their eyes to the truth of the gospel, the very fact that Jesus Christ came into this world, took on the body of a human being, of a man. He lived a perfect life without sin, and yet he went to the cross willingly, hung on the cross, and took upon himself all the sins of all those who would ever put their faith or trust in him for salvation. And so we, we thank you that that work was accomplished. But we pray if there's anyone here today who is yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, I know they're feeling the weight of their sin. They're feeling their conviction because there's none perfect. There's no, no one righteous. And it's only by your grace that we are saved. And so, Father, we pray that you would do that work of grace in their own heart, that you would cause them to turn to you. And Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. When that prayer is prayed from a sincere heart with the desire to turn from their sin to the Savior, God will answer that, and he will transform that person. Forgive their sin. Give them the Spirit of Christ to dwell within them. Open their eyes to the Scripture and begin that good work that you promised to complete. Father, we thank you, and we just pray your blessing on our day. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen.